The subject this morning from Matthew chapter 6 is trusting our Heavenly Father. Trusting our Heavenly Father as we continue in this series on the Sermon on the Mount and this section on the Sermon on the Mount that I've termed worry-free living. Notice I didn't say trouble-free living, okay, because man that is born of woman is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward, we read in Job 5, 7. Jesus did not promise immunity from trouble, but He did assure us that we can be delivered from worry and anxious care, amen? And He exemplified that with uh, when the fishing boat on the Sea of Galilee was just bobbing like a cork with those sudden storms that could come up and still do on that lake. It was bobbing like a cork, but, and the disciples were beside themselves in despair, but Jesus was in the hull of the ship sleeping like a baby. At a mere word from the lips of the Son of God, those waves settled down like docile puppies. You know why? Uh, men like those disciples and even like the apostle when Paul was shipwrecked, the, the, the people on board the ship with him, they trusted the maker and master of the boat. But Jesus was trusting the master and maker of the waves. And there's a difference. As your shepherd this morning, I want to say to you, some of whom are going through some tough times with your job, with your housing situation, with your children, maybe wayward children, perhaps even with your spouse. I would, I would say to you what Paul said to the Corinthians, that I would have you without worry, without carefulness. And Jesus shows us the way here. We must have victory over the world to be free of anxiety. And what did Jesus say about that? But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So we can have peace through Him. The Scripture for our consideration today is verses 25 through verse 30. Jesus said, therefore I say unto you, take no thought, meaning anxious thought. He doesn't mean do things without thinking. That's not His what his, his gist is here. Take no anxious thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the birds of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought, again anxious thought, can add one cubit unto his stature. We'll talk about that in a moment. Verse 28, why take ye thought for raiment, for clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith. And he continues in that vein for a few more verses, but we'll reserve those for a future Sunday. Wonderful, wonderful teaching. 
that's probably familiar to us if we've been in church for a long time. Maybe we've memorized these verses. It's, it's a little bit easier to memorize them than, than to live them, isn't it? And not be plagued with worry. In the previous verses we studied last week, Jesus started issuing commands here. Now, he didn't do that with the subject of fasting that, that came before. But he started issuing commands about this, our stewardship and about being worry-free. And he said, don't lay up treasure on earth, in verse 19. Quickly he adds, but do lay up treasures in heaven, verses 20 and 21. Verse 22 and 23, don't be greedy, don't be jealous. Verse 24, don't try to serve two masters. You can only serve one. Now, he doesn't really mention worry until he gets down to verse 25 that we just read when he says, therefore I say unto you, take no thought, no anxious thought for your life, and so forth. That's the first time he really mentions worry, anxious thought. Three more times in the remaining verses, he uses the word therefore. This is the first time. Therefore, to emphasize the reasons we don't need to worry. Have you ever considered this, that to worry is to be irrational? Because when we really think God's thoughts after Him, when we think Jesus' thoughts after Him here, we won't, we won't worry. Now, why does Jesus demand obedience before our minds are in the right frame? You know, we tend to think, well, we can't help certain things, and we've got to get our minds right, and then if we think right, then we'll do right. Could I just jar your thinking a little bit about that? Maybe provoke you when the Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says obedience comes first, and then God will get your, the kinks combed out of your head. Proverbs 16, verse 3. Commit thy works unto the Lord. That literally means roll them. I mean, just completely roll them off of you onto the Lord. Roll your works onto the Lord, and then thy thoughts shall be established. We tend to think just the opposite, don't we? That's so counterintuitive. We want to get our minds in gear and think right, and then we expect we'll do right. But the divine order is just the opposite. Sometimes I hear people say, well, Pastor, I know, I know what the Bible says, and I try to do it, and I just don't have the faith. I just don't have the faith I know I need. Could I respond? And I hope you won't think I'm being trite when I respond in the same way I heard the late Dr. Bill Rice that I heard many times preach there in the Bill Rice Ranch in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, the half-brother of Dr. John Rice. But the late Dr. Rice used to answer people who said that, I just don't have the faith. And he'd say this, well, just go ahead and do what you would do if you had the faith. And, you know, we laugh, but that's pretty much what the Bible says to do. That's, in essence, what Christ is saying here. He's saying, go ahead and invest in the kingdom of God. Be generous. Don't be jealous. Serve God with all your heart. And you know what? As a byproduct of obedience, peace and contentment will just sweep over your soul, and worry will go out the back door. I'm not oversimplifying, folks. That's the way it works. One more thing before we get into it. Please note the order of our 
of our being, all the parts of our being that Jesus deals with. He first deals with the, fir- the heart, first of all. Son, give me thine heart, we read in the book of Proverbs. And here in verse 21, as we considered last week, Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The heart comes first. That's what drives the rest of the being. Kind of alluded to it, but what uh, I think Dr. Bob Sr. used to say, if you give God your heart, he'll comb the kinks out of your head. The heart comes first. Then there's the mind. He goes on to say in verse 22, the light of the body is the eye. We talked about that. If therefore thine eye be single, if thine eye be clear, thy whole body shall be full of light. Verse 23, but if thine eye be evil or jealous, that's what that means, full of greed, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. You say, well, I don't see the mind mentioned there. Well, listen carefully. Jesus is talking about our, our whole outlook on others, the way we think about people our minds. Heart, mind, and then the will. He goes on to say in verse 24, no man can serve two masters. You're going to have to exercise your will and choose. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. can't do both. You're going to have to choose. Now, if Satan can't get through to you through one avenue, heart, mind, or will, he'll try another. It's very immaterial with him whether you lay up treasure on earth or, or just worry about earthly things. It accomplishes the same malevolent purpose. You may have resisted his overtures at the front door. But don't pat yourself on the back and think you've got him licked. He's going to slip around to the back door. We cannot afford to be ignorant of his devices, his stratagems, and he's got so many. We need to listen once again, truly hear what Jesus, the master teacher and the master thinker is telling us here how he's trying to get us to reason. I'll just put it simply this way. If Jesus can get you to think, you won't worry. If we fill our minds with certain powerful truths, worry is going to have to get out of there. Jesus will take all the oxygen in the room. I would like for you to see a parallel verse to the gist of the teaching here in Matthew 6. Please keep your finger there in Matthew 6. Turn to Luke chapter 12, the Gospel of Luke. It's so insightful, Christ's words here. I'm glad we have four Gospels, aren't you? It takes all of them to understand the life of Christ and His teachings. Luke chapter 12, and look at verse 29. And seek not ye what ye shall eat, Jesus said, or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of a, what are those next two words, class, say it, doubtful what? Mind. Neither be ye of a doubtful mind. That expression, doubtful mind, in the Greek is used to indicate something that divides, something that separates, something that distracts us. 
It's referring to a mind that compartmentalizes, and I'm sure nobody here does that but me. Divided into sections, it does not function as a whole. And probably the best illustration in the Bible that comes to our mind is what is found in the Gospels. It's in Luke chapter 10. You need not turn there. I'll just kind of briefly summarize. It's the story of Mary and Martha, you know, who the sisters of, of Lazarus that Jesus resuscitated from the dead. Mary and Martha, a case study. And that's not the message today, so I can't say too much. But Martha was all in a dither trying to get dinner ready for Jesus, who oft refreshed himself at their home in Bethany. Mary was where she was always at when Jesus was around. She was at his feet. (laughs) Every time you see Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus. She was just drinking in the words of his mouth, taking it all in. And Martha had about all she could take. And she came in and poured out her complaint and said, Master, don't you care that I'm left alone in the kitchen to get this meal ready? And Mary's in here just taking it easy. Well, Jesus rebuked her kindly, gently, said, Martha, you're careful, you're worried, you're troubled about, remember what he said? Many things. Many things. But your sister Mary is doing the one thing that is needful. Poor Martha was distracted. Mary, on the other hand, hand, had a single purpose. She could say with the Apostle Paul to to the uh, Philippians, this one thing I do. And that eliminates worry, frustration, being in a dither. How must we think, because I'm, I'm concerned about our thinking today, how must we think if we would trust our Heavenly Father and eliminate worry from our lives? Uh, some doctors would go out of business if it wasn't for stress. If people were stress-free, some doctors would just have to go out of business. How must we think? Number one, God as creator assures us that He is our sustainer. We can accept the creator part. It's not so easy to accept the sustainer part. In verses 26 through 28, Jesus uses a familiar point of logic, argumentation. That is, he deduces from the greater to the lesser. He reasons from the greater to the lesser. My mind immediately goes to, I think, the chief verse that illustrates this, Romans 8, 32. You need not turn there. Listen, tremendous verse. I hope you've memorized it. It says, he that spared not his own son, God spared not his own son, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That's reasoning from the greater to the lesser. If God gave us his best, would he cavil at giving us something lesser? No. And so Christ is directing his words to believers here. It's important to point that out. I'll say that again. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to believers. And that's why he says twice in this passage, your heavenly Father. God is not the heavenly Father of the unsaved person. Despite all the sentimental songs that talk about we're all 
God's children. Brothers all are we, let me walk with my brother in perfect harmony. Some Christians get all teary singing that psalm, but it's totally unscriptural. Okay, okay, just want to make sure you're with me there. Okay. Your heavenly Father, that's for believers. We talk about common grace. Common grace. We noted that in chapter 5 where Jesus said, your Father sends the rain on the just and the sunshine on the just and the, and the unjust. He is merciful to all. That's common grace. But He only promises to supply all our need if we know Him as our Father. He only causes all grace to abound toward those who are His children. He only causes all things to work together for good to them who love the Lord. And unless we're saved, we don't love Him. We may think we do. So let's not go astray in this sentimental, mushy thinking about the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. That's blatantly unscriptural. And we'll draw some really bad conclusions if we accept that. So Jesus is reasoning from the greater to the lesser. And the first illustration of that is he says life is more than food. The first line of reasoning that Christ would have us to consider, lest we become anxious, if you really want an antidote for worry here, is the rhetorical question at the end of verse 25. Therefore I say unto you, take no anxious thought, that's the word idea there, take no anxious thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you should put on is not, and he says this, is not the life more than food, meat. What's the answer to that, class? Yes, definitely. The life is more than food. Jesus said in Matthew 4, verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. To treat man as uh, some mere food-devouring organism is the same perverse, degraded reasoning that treats an unborn baby as a blob of protoplasm. Man is made in the image of God, though that image has been severely marred spiritually. The Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, verse 11, God has put eternity in man's heart. Every man. God knows what we need. He created man. He sustains man. He does not create an appetite without creating a provision for its satisfaction. I love how easy it is for him to do that. We read in Psalm 145, the eyes of all wait upon thee, all animals, all humans, and thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. That's how easy it is for God to do that. It's nothing to Him. It cost Him His only Son to save us, but it cost Him nothing to create us and sustain us. Nothing. And yet I hear people all stressed out say, but Pastor, I got to work. I got to keep the wolf from the door. I've got, I've got umpteen mouths to feed at home. I got to work to feed my family. You know my response to that? No. 
You might be surprised. You're probably shocked. They say, the Bible says if a man doesn't work, neither should he eat. I know. But it's God's responsibility to take care of you. You're not to keep the wolf away from the door. If he caused an explosion to shut down the workplace tomorrow where you work, he would still take care of you. He's the real giver. And he can do it in so many different ways. And we may face that yet if we haven't already. You know what the purpose for work is? According to the Bible, it's not to keep the wolf away from the door. Ephesians 4.28 says we should labor with our hands that we may have to give to him that needeth. That's the purpose for work. So let's look to God to supply our needs, not to ourselves. Yes, He gives us the strength to work, the power to get wealth. I get that. But He's the provider. Let's lose sight of secondary causes because we just look to God. We just trust God. Many of you have heard and loved the great song by the late Charles Weigel, No One Ever Cared for Me Like Jesus. That's the song he's known for, but he wrote a number of other great songs. He lived his last few years of his life on the campus of Tennessee Temple University where I attended and graduated. They made a little apartment for him since he was a musician. They made a little apartment for him right there in the music building. They called it the Weigel Building. They wrote another song among one of many, and the chorus goes like this. I love it. He feeds the birds, he grows the grain, he sends the sunshine and the rain, so do not fear or anxious be. God changeth not, he cares for thee. And Charles Weigel proved that song. Years before he wrote that song. He was 80, 89 years of age when he wrote it, by the way. He only lived a few more years. But years before that, his wife left him. She said, I can't take this traveling and evangelism anymore. Surprised him. So he couldn't get money from the sources he'd gotten. He had to trust God. And God took care of him. The life is more than food. And then Jesus said, the body is more than clothes, it's more than raiment. The same God who gave us life gave us a body in which to live that life. And Jesus could say in His incarnation, as it says in the book of Hebrews, quoting from Psalm 40, sacrifice and offering thou wouldst wouldst not, a body hast thou prepared me. That's what Jesus said, a body hast thou prepared me. And in that body, Jesus perfectly glorified God, proving that the body is not innately sinful. When sometimes we just say, oh, this old sinful flesh, this old sinful flesh. I hope we understand what we mean or should mean. We're not talking about our body. The Lord hath need of our body. God gave us a body. Our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made. Yes, they're affected by sin. Every one of us are in every way. 
But that body, as I said, is fearfully and wonderfully made. And, and the psalmist went on to say, Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Our bodies, although born in this world with the seeds of demise and decay, our bodies physically made in the image of God are God's creative wonder. There is no camera like the human eye. There is no computer like the human brain. There's no robot with a finger that can do what your thumb can do, unless something's wrong with your thumb. There's no sophisticated sound equipment, thank God for all the upgrades we did during COVID, and they're still, we're still enjoying them here. But no sophisticated sound equipment that can duplicate what your ear does. Who did that? Oh, the human body that God's creative fingerprints made. He's got, got them all over it, hasn't he? Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? So let's not worship the creature, but the Creator. Americans are all caught up in worshiping physical fitness specimens and beauty queens and all these things, and that's entirely off base as far as God is concerned. Let's not worship the creature, but the Creator. And trust Him to sustain what He has so fearfully and wonderfully made. Would you consider with me quickly just some self-evident implications here? And I hope you don't think that I'm riding a hobby horse. I'm, I'm definitely not. And I'm sticking to the point. But I think some things need to be said that probably should go without saying. First of all, when he talks about the body is more than clothes, he's assuming modesty with clothes. Notice that raiment is referred to here as a necessity of life. Hey, why wear any clothes at all, especially if you're in the tropical climates and in warm seasons? I'll tell you why we should, because God said in the beginning when man fell in the garden, his guilt was symbolized by his nakedness. It was God who was the one who slew innocent animals, who made coats of skin and covered our parents' nakedness. He clothed them. Clothing is God's idea. We need to remember this. Every year it seems the church seems to drift a little closer to the world in its fashions. And I may lose somebody for saying this. I love you, but I'm tired of being accused of legalism just because we tell people you need to dress right, you need to do right, you need to be clean living. Every year the fashions get tighter, more daring and revealing. May I just remind us all that as far as God is concerned, modesty never goes out of style. You can be modest and not dowdy, not drab. And thank you, ladies, for showing forth that. And Paul told a young pastor named Timothy that our attire and our demeanor, speaking up for everyone, but especially for ladies, he said, should bespeak, and I, he, we have these words in the King James, shamefacedness and sobriety. They're variously translated in other English versions. One version that I checked says, modesty and self-restraint. The King James says shamefacedness and sobriety. Modesty 
and self-restraint. It's interesting that the Greek there for shamefacedness refers to downcast eyes and bashfulness in the presence of men. I'm not kidding. Look it up. Look it up. Believers should not be making bold statements by our dress and adorning. God treats clothing as a necessity, not as an enhancement. And you may challenge that, but I just I, I see if those things are so. Secondly, contentment with basics is implied. Not only is modesty assumed, contentment with basics is implied. Again, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verse 8, and having food and raiment, let us be there with content. These are the basics. These are the non-negotiables. If God gives us much more than that, we run the risk of being distracted, not by the cares of this world, but by the other thing Jesus mentioned in the parable of the sower, by the deceitfulness of riches. They make us feel entitled and invincible and superior when we're not. We're still helplessly dependent upon our Heavenly Father for these things. Have you seen those awful pictures on Maui where the entire district has been burned? Once in a big while, you'll see a house still standing. It just stands out like a sore thumb. People with money, people with beautiful homes, they're gone. Some of them have lost their life. Probably just the tip of the iceberg, the, the number we've heard so far, a little over 100. How helplessly we de dependent we are upon our Heavenly Father for what we have. So let's pray according to the wise man Augur's prayer. The inspired prayer in Psalm 30, verse 8, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me. The word convenient there means the food of my allotment, the food of my allowance. Let's face it, folks, and we, sometimes we, we got tunnel vision because we live in America. We can't see ourselves the way others do, the way God does. Our problem in America is our luxuries have become our necessities. So don't pray to win the North Carolina lottery. And if you do win it, please don't give one dollar to this church. The curse of God is on that filthy lucre. Be content to be a pilgrim and a stranger down here. And anything is good enough for a pilgrim. And so we sing, and I hope we mean it from our hearts. A tent or a cottage, why should I care? They're building a palace for me over there. Though exiled from home, yet still I can sing, Oh, glory to God, I'm a child of the King. Let's not forget that. Set your affections and expectations on things above, not on things on the earth. And if you understand what awaits us, <laughs> What you can expect on the other side, you won't be singing down here, Lord, build me just a cabin in the corner of glory land. Some of you are laughing, you know, I'm scratching an itch there. And if you're truly satisfied with Jesus, you'll be satisfied with all that he supplies. 
And that'll lead to not only contentment, but it leads to genuine thankfulness. There should never be a day that goes by where we fail to thank God for the gift of life, for the food that He gives to sustain our existence. Wonderful verses that we just read in at the beginning of the service, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, be careful, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Yes, God knows the things we have need of before we ask, but let's still make them known unto God. We're acknowledging our dependence upon Him that way. It is God who gives us life. That life is more than meat. The body is more than clothing. And if God gives the greater, will He quibble about giving the lesser class? No. It's unthinkable. Thirdly, we are of more value than birds and flowers. That's the gist of Jesus' words there in verses 26 and 28. He says, behold, notice He says, Behold there, a little bit later, consider the lilies. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Reasoning from the greater to the, or from the lesser to the greater there. And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. Verse 29, and yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Behold the fowls, behold the birds, consider the flowers. So we're commanded to study nature. Solomon said in Proverbs, go to the ant, thou sluggard. So if you, if you fail to do that, you really are suspect. Behold the birds, consider the flowers. Is there any difference between the two? Is it just poetic parallelism? Well, I think there could be a difference. And Jesus goes on to cite the difference. Whereas a fowl of the air will live for a few days or weeks, the lily, like the grass of the field, starts dying as soon as it's cut. And it was used for fuel in Bible times. We, by way of contrast, Having been made in the image of God, as I said already, we have eternity in our hearts. We are made immortal. We, are, we do not come into this world immortal. We are made immortal when we are made alive in Christ. And we are more valuable to God than sparrows or lilies. Shall He not much more take care of us as far as our basic needs of life? How wicked it is then to have bird sanctuaries but baby-killing clinics. How messed up is our thinking? How cheap human life has become to us, but it hasn't changed in God's sight. It's still valuable to Him. I must hasten. Secondly, we see from these verses back in Matthew 6 that worry is futile. It's unavailing. Verse 27 is somewhat of an enigma. Maybe you've discovered that if you've read different translations of the rendering of this verse. Verse 27, would Jesus say, which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? Cubit is about 18 inches. Is he really talking about being 18 inches taller? 
Well, most English translations would substitute the words lifespan for stature. But is that warranted? Is that a a true translation? Well, believe it or not, and I'm not trying to cop out here, the Greek doesn't answer it. Half of the authorities say stature means height. But the same Greek word also means length or duration, referring to duration of life. So we can't make a determination here in terms of the Greek. We have to determine it by context. A cubit is about 18 inches. Remember that the pattern of our Lord's thinking is, He's reasoning from the greater to the lesser. Can you imagine anyone being worried that he needs to add 18 inches to his height? About the only person I can imagine that would do that would be somebody who wants to play basketball, dunk it, and draw a big NBA salary. You may want to be a little bit taller, 18 inches taller. But many people, if not most, would be taking anxious thought to add to their life, their lifespan. So Jesus is saying here, how many of you, by being anxious and full of care about temporals, can extend the length of your life? We can. And we do well to reflect on this much more frequently than we do. Even if we're wealthy, if money is not an issue, we can afford the best health care, and we can take the low-carb food and the high-energy drinks and all the vitamins and supplements and natural stuff that may or may not be good for us. Even if we do that, the Bible stresses over and over again that death still overtakes the rich and the poor. And yet how many rich people are blinded to that fact? They're just anesthetized by their wealth to think they're going to live forever. They're going to add house to house, land to land, they're going to enjoy all the amenities of life. Psalm 49 verse 6 says, they that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any man's redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him that he should still live forever and not see corruption. Amazing how people still try. I mentioned in a state of the church message a while back about the late famous baseball star Ted Williams, had about the highest lifetime batting average of anybody in Major League Baseball. But he died in uh, 2002, and he had his body frozen. Whether or not he really left instructions for that is debated. One of his children said no, the other said yes. It only cost $136,000 to do that. His body was put in two pieces in, uh, in two canisters. But neither Ted Williams nor anyone else who believes in cryogenics or reincarnation is going to be able to redeem his soul that way. The Bible doesn't talk about somebody being frozen, expecting to come back to life, but it does talk about the rich fool who built bigger barns in which to bestow his goods. And he said to himself, soul, soul, thou hast many goods laid up for many years, eat, drink, and be merry, and that very night... God said, okay, your time's up, bud. Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose things shall those be which thou hast provided? So why then worry about something you can't control? And that is your lifespan. 
Wouldn't it be uh, wiser to give attention to the life to come? That brings me to my third point. I hope that the Spirit of God will convict us and speak to us. Jesus said in verse 30 that a faith greater than saving faith is required to resist worry. I don't know if you noticed it quite that way. But in verse 30, wherefore, this is a concluding verse of this section, though we'll consider the remaining verses in a couple of weeks. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven as soon as it's cut, shall he not much more clothe you? And then he says, O ye of what class? Little faith. Who's he talking to? Believers. He's talking to believers. From the context, these are the same ones in whom, in whom the Beatitudes are true. These are the ones who are poor in spirit. They're not proud. They've humbled themselves before God. These are the ones who are meek, who are merciful, who have mourned over their sins. These are the ones who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. These are the ones of whom Jesus could say that God was their heavenly Father. And now he says, O ye of little faith. You think we might be guilty of that too? Little faith is due to a lack of thinking. Sometimes we have this idea that faith is just something purely mystical, it's vague, it's shadowy, it's indefinable. And so we speak about people of faith and we just speak so vaguely of faith. Please understand what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, look at the birds and draw conclusions about God. Look at the grass and the lilies and quit worrying about temporals. Faith is intensely practical. The trouble with worriers is not that they overthink. I have people come to me and say that all the time. You know, I think my problem is I overthink. I don't like to be unkind, but in most cases that's not true. Your problem is you keep going over the same miserable details. You don't think enough. Your thinking about creation needs to lead you to think about the Creator, but you stop short of that. And so you can't take God at His word. Little faith is not only due to a lack of thinking, little faith is inability to take God at His word. Some Christians are going to make it to heaven. All Christians are going to make it to heaven. Everybody who really has put their faith in Jesus is going to make it to heaven. But some believers will be the most shocked when they get there with anybody. They run scared the whole way. And that's not humility. That's unbelief. God has something better than that for us. I don't just say it to be cute. God intends for us to have a heaven to go to heaven in if we just trust our heavenly father. James 4 verse 2, ye have not because ye ask not. I'm sure I'm talking this morning to some chronic worriers out there. Maybe you say, well, pastor, I just can't help it. I don't mean to be unkind, I don't mean to be unsympathetic, but oh yes, you can. I can. If we've trusted God for eternals, why can't we trust Him for temporals? Let's quit misrepresenting God to a skeptical world.
If you're a chronic worrier, there's nothing wrong with you that a good dose of Matthew chapter 6 wouldn't fix. Now, if you cannot give a Bible reason for the hope of eternal life, you've got plenty to worry about. And let me just say, just because you don't have any worries doesn't mean that you're okay. Satan loves to give a carnal sense of security. There are people with a false security. There are people with a false hope of heaven. And the word for them from Scripture is, awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. The devil's not going to disturb your peace if you're on your way to hell. May God give us, as believers, the peace of God as well as peace with God. Shall we pray? Father, thank you that we can call you that. But so often we treat you as if you don't or can't care for us as your children. Please forgive us. I'm sure there are people here today or listening watching who really do know you and love you but they have that little faith they're still plagued by that awful sin of worry oh it robs them of their sleep it affects their health it breeds insecurity in their spouse and children it keeps them from reaching out to others in their sin and need because they're so preoccupied with their own problems which are dwarfed compared to the problems of a world around them in sin on the way to hell it disturbs their peace of conscience oh god if that's true of us, we're in a bad way. Please reveal yourself to us as our tender, pitying, loving Father. Please let God be true and every man a liar, including that inner man that tends to doubt you. Would you enable us by the grace of the indwelling Spirit to confess and forsake that awful sin of worry. If some are indulging a false peace, a false assurance of heaven, Lord, I pray you will help them to worry. Bring conviction upon them until they close with the Lord Jesus Christ and make peace with God and have the peace that passeth understanding because of an assurance of salvation and a standing with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand to our seat and sing Fanny.